Now, friends, as we come to the little book of Haggai, we note in particular how important it would have been to have considered the historical books with the prophetic books. Now, there's a little cluster of books that belong together. There is Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. They are the historical books. They should go along with Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And also, the book of Daniel ought to be studied in there also, probably first. So that these books belong together, and they constitute a unit, by the way. And these two men that we're coming to now, the first two, Haggai and Zechariah, they prophesied at the same time. Their approach is altogether different, and yet they were encouraging the remnant that had returned back to Jerusalem and to the land. Now, the book that we were looking at last was the little book of Jude. Actually, that little book dealt with the apostates. It dealt with those that were called sensual. They did not have the Holy Spirit. They were not quite complete, yet this crowd always feels like they're quite adequate. And if any one thing characterizes them, of course, it's pride. They want to appear intellectual. That's the highest part of them, of course. But the highest faculty they know nothing about, and they're not spiritual. They have neglected the spiritual altogether. You see, dead in trespasses and sins means there's no spiritual communication between that individual and God. He's dead to God and the things of God. And it's only as the Holy Spirit comes in and makes the person a new creation. And that's the reason that so many write in and say, well, I never knew what life was really about. I never really lived, though they were in sin and they thought they were living it up. You see, this crowd, they are off just a little. They're not quite down to earth. They could be classified, I think, as psychotic and neurotic individuals. That's what the psychiatrist would say today. And you know the difference between a psychotic and a neurotic. A psychotic is one who thinks two plus two equals five. Now, the neurotic, he knows that two plus two equals four, but he worries about it. That's the difference between these two. Now, we've come to a book that is such a change that brings us right back to earth and probably will shake us as no other book will in the Scripture. And we are going to see there's quite a contrast between Haggai and Zechariah, though they lived at the same time. Now, both of these men are mentioned in the little book of Ezra as having encouraged the remnant that returned unto Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, encouraged them to rebuild first the temple and then the walls of the city. And I'm reading now Ezra, the fifth chapter, verse 1. Then the prophets Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem, 
in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. So both Haggai and Zechariah are given to us in this historical book as the two prophets that encourage the people to rebuild the temple and also aided them in that. Now when you go over to the sixth chapter of Ezra, again you will find a reference to these men and how they helped there. In the 14th verse, it says, And the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they builded and finished it, that is, the temple, according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now, we have this reference here that these prophets encouraged the people to build, and they built, and they carried out the commandment of God. But we're going to find out from Haggai's prophecy that they had a real problem before them, and it was rather difficult to encourage the people to rebuild. Now, actually, they rebuilt the temple, but it was in the presence of great difficulties certain hardships and handicaps, and it seemed like they were coming at them at every hand. Now, from this and the brief references that he made to himself in his prophecy, very little is known about Haggai, but four things become apparent from what we have. Number one, he was self-effacing. That is, he exalted the Lord, and when he did... He took the same position of John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, the second thing, he was God's messenger. And he used the term, thus saith the Lord. That's another thing that characterized this man's message. And the third thing that we know about him, he not only rebuked the people, but he cheered and encouraged them in a very marvelous way. Now, number four, he not only preached, he practiced. And I like to say at times that I do the preaching and my wife does the practicing, and there's a lot of truth in that, by the way. Now, the time that this man Haggai prophesied, we are told here in verse 1, in the second year of Darius, the king in the sixth month and the first day of the month. Now, we're going to find he dates all of his prophecies, but it was in the second year of Darius. Now, that enables the historian to pinpoint the time of this prophet in profane history. And his Taspis, the Darius that's mentioned here, he began to reign in 521 B.C., and if this is the second year of his reign, it's 520 B.C. And that is approximately the time that he began. And the very interesting thing is that you'll note that these post-captivity prophets begin to date 
their prophecy according to the reign of Gentile rulers. May I say that makes it very interesting because of the fact that the other prophets who prophesied before the captivity always tried to date their prophecy during the reign of either a king of Israel or a king of Judah or the kings of both. But now there's no king there, of course, neither in the northern kingdom nor the southern kingdom. And so he dates his prophecy according to the Gentile king. In other words, that period of time that the Lord Jesus said that Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Actually, that time had begun, had already begun. And now the dating is according to the times of the Gentiles. Now, that makes it very specific, you see. And I'll say a word about that in just a moment. Now, his theme is the temple and the reconstruction and the refurbishing of the temple. That was the supreme passion of this prophet. He not only rebuked the people for their delay in rebuilding the temple, but he encouraged them and helped them in this enterprise. Now, this man Haggai, he constantly referred to the word of the Lord. You will notice that as we go through the little prophecy here. Verse 2, he says, Thus speaketh the Lord. And then verse 3, Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, and so on. You'll find that all through this book. And he puts the emphasis there. Now, this man apparently willingly humbled himself that the Lord might be exalted. And the thing about Haggai is that he's very practical. Nothing poetic about him. He's prosaic. Frankly, he may bore you. I hope he won't, but he may be very boring to you. He's very simple. There's nothing that will lift you to the heights, actually, here. In fact, he carried a measuring stick around with him. And he is the one who said that two plus two equals four. He measured everything. And he's very practical. And I think that the prophecy of Haggai and the epistle of James have very much in common. Both of them put the emphasis upon the daily grind. They get right down to the nitty-gritty. They get right down where the rubber meets the road. Both of them deal with nuts and bolts of this life. And they show that action is spiritual. A do-nothing attitude is wicked, according to both of them. Both place the yardstick down upon life, and work is the measure of life. Now, it's one thing to say to the Lord, 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 and call him Lord. It's another thing to live like it. Remember, he says there's going to be those in that day that are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, look what we did. And he said, well, I don't even know you. They weren't doing the will of God. They weren't working for him at all. And you remember the Lord Jesus himself gave the parable about a man had two sons, one's 
Sonny says, go out and work in the field. The boy says, sure. My, he had a testimony meeting, and he told how the Lord had saved him and how he's called to the mission field. He's going out and work. But he never did go. He never really did anything. The other boy, he said, no, Dad, I'm not going. He was out of the will of God. But time went on, and he saw that he'd made a big mistake. And finally he said, Dad, I'm going to go out there. And he didn't have a testimony meeting. He didn't have a lot of palaver over it. He didn't make a big deal of doing God's will. He just went out and did what his dad told him to do. And the Lord Jesus asked the very searching question, which one of them you think really did God's will? That's a question the Lord asks us. Pretty easy to answer, friend. Now, Haggai is the man that says, you're going to have to go out and go to work if you're going to serve the Lord. Now, he's so practical in that, that very frankly, a great many today are going to turn away from it. I can't find anywhere where he ever had a church banquet. He never put on one of those. He never spent time doing the easy thing. He said, you're going to need to go to work. And he's going to emphasize that. And that's something that's very important. Now, Zechariah, now he's different. Zechariah was poetic. He was visionary. And he had his head in the clouds. He didn't have his feet on the ground. But Haggai was pragmatic. He had both feet on the ground. You see, both of these men need to go together. The man of action and the dreamer need to walk together. The poet and the pragmatic individual need to go together. It's very important that they do. And so over the little book of Haggai, you can write, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's 1 Corinthians 15:58, And that is a good picture of this book that you have here. And it makes it a rather remarkable book. Now, I've already given you some of the background in Ezra of this little book of Haggai. They prophesied to the remnant that had returned, and especially when they got discouraged, which they did. Now, as I said, that Haggai and Zechariah, they approach from two different viewpoints, one from the practical viewpoint and the other from the very poetic viewpoint. This man, Zechariah, my, he had visions. If you want an example of what I mean, he saw a woman coming through the air, and she was in a bushel basket. Now, here in Southern California, all the cults and isms and schisms and schisms, they've all had women play a prominent part in their ritual, their service, and in their public image that they give. But I never yet have heard one of them that had a woman floating through the air in a bushel basket. Zechariah went him one better, and he would really go over in Southern California. But Haggai wouldn't go over in Southern California. He's too pragmatic. Somebody says, we're going to call a prayer meeting in order that we might be able to build a temple. And Haggai said, look, all right, if you're going to have a prayer meeting, you have it at night when we can't work. Because in the morning, at daylight, I want you to bring your hammer and saw and come out here. We're going to build a temple. And you know, a lot of people don't like that. 
prayer meetings lots easier for them because it enables them not to do anything. And I don't think I'm minimizing prayer. I'm not. But there are a great many people who pray and don't do anything. They are not like the man that Bishop, I forget now, Bishop Muzan, I guess it was down in Georgia many years ago. He says when a man prays for a corn crop, God expects him to say amen with a hole. That is something that is needed today. Now, we are going to find something else about this man that makes him quite remarkable. He dates his messages. He actually, in a compass of three months and 14 days, according to the calendar, he delivered five messages, and each one given on a specific date. And we'll get them as we go along. You have the first one given on September the 1st, 520. Now, don't tell me how I know that. We'll talk about that next time. The second one he gave on September the 24th, 520. And the third one he gave on October the 21st, 520. And then he gave the fourth message on December the 24th, 520. And then the fifth message he gave on December the 24th, 520. Now, somebody said to me a long time ago, and I'd never thought of it, they said, why in the world did he give two messages on December the 24th? Well, I said, I suppose the reason is that the next day is Christmas. He wanted to be home with his family for Christmas. The party turned and walked away from me because they didn't think that's an adequate answer. Well, that means I just don't have the answer, my friend. Now, again, may I say that we are now geared into a calendar that is the calendar of the times of the Gentiles. The Lord Jesus said, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That's still true right at this very moment. Now, we're in those times here. Definitely so. It's not geared to a king of Israel or Judah, not geared anymore to the Davidic line. But the calendar now refers to them. And it's the first day of the month, and the month is the sixth month. Now, I have to say this to you categorically, because when you take the Jewish calendar, you will find that this is September the 1st, 520. Now, here's a book you can date very easily. And he says, unto Zerubbabel, he is the political ruler, the son of Shealtiel. And Zerubbabel, as we said, means sown in Babylon. Or he was raised in Babylon. He has a Babylonian name, by the way. He had been born in captivity. Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. You have both the religious and the civil ruler mentioned. Verse 2, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say the time is not come the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now, let's look at that for just a moment. Here is what God says the people were saying, and this is what they were saying. You see, when they first returned back to the land, they returned with great enthusiasm. The anticipation was high, and the enthusiasm ran high. But they met gigantic obstacles, which required Herculean effort and hardships. 
And after they went through a period like that, they became discouraged when they began to build the temple. The difficulties seemed insurmountable. And so they rationalized that it was just not the time to build. In other words, this was their pseudo-consolation. They decided to maintain the status quo. Well, it's so hard, evidently God doesn't intend us to do it. The foundation of the temple was laid, but the opposition of the Samaritans was so intense that they simply stopped the building. They didn't go on with it, and their excuse is, well, the time has not come. Now, this is going to hurt just a little, friends, because Haggai is going to put the knife in where the trouble spot is, I think, today in the lives of many Christians. Have you ever heard someone explain the fact that they gave up doing something or that they didn't go someplace or that sort of thing? And they said, well, the Lord's will was for me to do otherwise. Or the Lord directed me to do this sort of thing. You know, that expression, that Christian cliche today, covers a multitude of sins. It's so easy when things get hard and they get rough to turn in a report to everyone and say, well... The Lord's leading me otherwise. Many a preacher, I'm afraid, that when the going gets rough in a church, and it's rough for the pastor today, my heart goes out to pastors who are really trying to serve God. But it's so easy to say, well, the Lord is leading me elsewhere. And if any of us that get on a hot spot, that's the answer we come up with, well, the Lord is leading me elsewhere. Now, these people started building the temple, and the going was rough. You recall reading Nehemiah when they were rebuilding the walls. Look at the opposition that that man had when he tried to rebuild the walls. Well, they had the same kind of opposition in building the temple. And the people turned it off by saying, well, it's not the Lord's time to do this. Now, I... Remember when we attempted to remodel the church in downtown Los Angeles that I had served? In its long history, it had never been remodeled. And the seats in there, 4,000 of them, by the way, they were built to take care of people 15, 60 years ago. And do you know that we discovered something that people are about two and a half inches wider today than they were? 15, 60 years ago. That ought to tell you something, at least the people that go to church. So we got new pews and put them in. And cushioned pews, by the way. Lovely. And we had some very pious souls that said, well, we don't feel like money should be spent for cushioned seats. We should give that money to missions. Well, the majority of the folk wanted to cushion seats. So did I. And so I made a proposition to those folk. I said, now, look, what we're going to do is there are many people here that are so enthusiastic about remodeling that they're going to give enough for their seat and your seat, too. They're going to pay for both of the pews. And you don't have to give to buying a seat. 
You say the money should be given to missions. Now, come on, give $25 to mission. And I said, I hope that we can take up an offering today of several hundred $25 check. You know that we got very few that day. You know why? Because the time hadn't come. It wasn't the Lord's will. And they never intended to give, and they used the excuse of not giving to the new seats because they said it should be given to missions. Well, if it should be given to missions, why didn't they give it? They didn't. And may I say to you that I had the privilege in every church I've served to remodel it. That seems to have been my lot. I've never built a new church, but I sure have remodeled every one I've been in. And I've always encountered that problem. There was always a little group. They're very small, thank God for that. And they don't do anything, but they're good at criticizing. And that was always the excuse. Oh, this money shouldn't be spent here on us. We should give it to missions. Well, why didn't they give it to missions? They didn't. Oh, this crowd here and Haggai just pulls the band-aid off and exposes the sore that's here. And you can be sure of one thing. This wasn't an ouchless band-aid that he pulled off. It hurt. You can be sure of this. Will you listen to what he has to say to them in answer to this? Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. This is the message now that he's going to give, his answer to them. And this is message number one, given on September the 1st, 520. Now, here is God's answer. Will you listen to it? Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai. You notice this man, back of the word of the Lord all the way through. To God be the glory. Wasn't just a song to him. He made it that way. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your paneled houses and this house to lie waste? The point was this. These people said it's not time to build the Lord's house, but they all built their own houses, and it seemed to have been time to do that. Isn't it amazing today? I found this true not only as a pastor, but I found it true in radio today. Great many people promise, yes, I think the Lord's leading me to help you. And then a little later on, the going got rough for them a little, and they said, well, maybe it's not the Lord's will for me to do this. You see, the minute that things become difficult, why, that's the moment we decide it's not the Lord's will. But when it is something that's for our own selfish ends, we generally do that, don't we? Or we make the effort that is required to accomplish that will always be to our benefit. For instance, these people were, all of them, living in panel houses. How in the world were they able to do that? And there were difficulties. But they overcame the difficulties to build their own house. But they were not able to overcome the difficulties to build the Lord's house. And their lame excuse was, the time is not here. It's just not the Lord's will right now for us to do this. 
Oh, I get so weary of hearing people say that as an excuse for not doing something for God. It's not the Lord's will. What do you know about the Lord's will? Just because it's difficult, it's hard, it's going to cost you something, does that mean that it's not the Lord's will? May I say to you, that's not the way you interpret the Lord's will. Sometimes it's very rugged and very difficult. Oh, if we could have some of the choice saints of God of the past here today, they would tell us, I wonder what Abraham would have to say to these people today. He said, well, it's not the Lord's will for me to do this. This man lived down in Ur of the Chaldees, had a nice business down there. You can be sure of one thing. This man, who's the father of the Israelites, was a good businessman. And he was doing well in Ur of the Chaldees. That was a highly civilized city in that day. Prosperous city. Luxury was there. God says, I want you to get up and get out of this place. Very easy for Abraham to tell his neighbors. He said, I must have misunderstood. The Lord never asked me to leave this place here. It's soft. It's easy. And therefore, it just couldn't be the Lord's will for me to do this thing at all. Friends, may I say to you, there are literally thousands of missionaries down yonder on the mission fields of this world today. They're out there. And many of them making great sacrifices. Why? Because they thought it was the Lord's will for them to go. I wonder how many are at home today that ought to be out there. I wonder how many church members there are that busiest termites putting on banquets and doing things in the church that don't require really any hardship. It's not any standing up to it, not opposition not really getting out the Word of God. I wonder how many are there today, and they're trying to say, well, this is God's will for me, but it's not God's will for me to make a sacrifice for God. My, how he bears down in Haggai lets you know that this is the Word of God that he's given. This is what God said. Then came the Word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye to dwell in your panel houses and this house to lie waste? Now, I always feel very badly when I'm in a place like Mexico and I see those ornate cathedrals and people living in poverty around those cathedrals. It's easy for us to point our finger to that today and say, that just isn't right. And I'll agree that that just isn't right. But when I see a church that needs so much, it needs to be made attractive. It has to be attractive to get the sinner in, friends. And nothing is being done along that line at all. I know several churches I've been in, and that's been their weak excuse. I remember staying with a deacon, and he told me, he says, you know, we believe in giving to missions here. We believe in that, and that's the reason we don't have a carpet on the floor in the church, and that's the reason that we have not put in new pews. Do you know that he took me to his home, and I was treated royally by that man? Never had such wonderful hospitality extended. He put me in a guest room that's nicer than anything I've ever been in, and he had a home that 
I'm told, cost over $100,000 back in the old days. Not today, but back in the old days. I have a notion to be twice that today. And, you know, it's all I could do to keep quiet. I've had to bite my tongue to try to keep quiet and not say, well, you believe in giving to missions, and you don't put a rug on the church auditorium at all. And it's not very attractive. And then look here at your home. What about that? Couldn't you have spared just a little here? You should have built maybe not quite as large. A $50,000 home in that day would bet one a luxury. Couldn't you have taken the other 50000 and given that to the missions that you seem to be so interested in? May I say to you, friends, how much are you really spending on yourself and how much are you really doing for God today? It gets down close to us, does it not? May I use another illustration? I went with a friend of mine. He's a good friend of mine. He's a fine Christian layman. He took me out to dinner, and it's rather expensive. He left a generous tip for the waitress. And then he wanted to take me to a service that night to hear a certain preacher. He thought I should hear him. And we went and heard a good sermon. And when the offering plate was passed, I watched him. He put in one dollar. But he must have given that waitress either two or three dollars. And I thought, my, he's not even tipping God in an honest way. He tips the waitress in the restaurant more than he tips God at a service. May I say to you, friends, this rather gets down where we live, does it not? These people were saying, it's just not the time for the Lord's house to be built. God says, then, how is it time that your house has been built? May I say to you, the hypocrisy that is in the church is something that is sickening to a great many folks. They hear people boast of what they do for God, but what they do for themselves is a thousand times more than what they're doing for God. I told you this was going to hurt. I told you that Haggai wouldn't be popular. This man never did win a popularity contest. He just never could do that sort of thing at all. It just wasn't in him. He's rather like an alarm clock. You know, the alarm clock will never become the most treasured possession of the average American. It's an institution of our contemporary society, but not one that will be put in museums. The alarm clock will never win a loving cup or popularity contest. We never like to be waked up out of a sound and restful sleep. The culprit that does it's a criminal, and he should be punished, not rewarded. They're trying now, understand, to make alarm clocks with different kinds of pleasant sounds, soft music, honeyed words. But my friend, a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. The alarm clock with any other sound, is still an alarm clock. Even some large corporations funnel in periodically during working days soft and pleasing music. Better than the lash of the taskmaster or the whip of a Simon Legree to make employees produce. But you see, when people are comfortable and satisfied, they do not want to hear a disturbing voice or displeasing sound. And today... Our nation is prosperous, and 
powerful and comfortable and confident and satisfied and satiated. Yes, we've come through that type of a period. And woe to anyone who disturbs us, sounds an alarm, blows a whistle, turns on the siren. In one community, a church was restrained from putting up chimes because it wake up people Sunday morning in the neighborhood. You know, if Paul Revere rode again today, he'd be arrested for disturbing the peace. John the Baptist would lose his head, not for rebuking a king's sinful life, but for being a rabble-rouser and a calamity howler. That's the reason God's prophets never won a popularity contest. They were stoned, not starred, rejected. And Haggai, may I say, is an alarm clock. He disturbs us. He wakes us up. And frankly, friends, we just don't like that. He occupied a very difficult position. He was on a rough spot. He stood between a rock and a hard place. And people were numb, you see, to his message. They didn't want to hear it. They had just come out of Babylon. They didn't want to hear him say what he said to them. But he's attempting to wake them up to do something for God. Now, God calls their attention to something. Very practical here, friends. This is something that gets right down to the nitty-gritty of life. He says, verse 5, Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Well, actually, the word that he uses here is set your heart upon your ways. That is the thing that he's saying to them. Set your heart upon your ways. Look at what's happening to you. And he now goes into detail on that. He says, verse 6, "...ye have sown much, and you bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe yourselves, but there is none warm." And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it in a bag with holes in it. Now, God was judging them in their material things, and they were not recognizing it. You remember, this is something that we brought out in the epistle to the Hebrews for believers today. When God chastises us or disciplines us, there's a reason for it or when he judges us, and the child of God ought to explore the reasons. He ought to find out why it is God is putting him through the mill and why God is rubbing sandpaper on him. God wants to smooth the edges off of our lives, by the way, and so he does use the sandpaper. Now, for these people, there had been crop failure. There had been famine. There had been no money to buy clothes. There hadn't been enough to eat or enough to drink, and they didn't have a savings account at all. But they never once attributed that to their disobedience. They were trying to pass it off for some other reason. A lot of God's children today, they say, oh, that's just my luck. It's not your luck if you're God's child. These things come to you for a purpose. God won't let anything happen to you unless it happens for a purpose. God is attempting to develop something in your heart and in your life. And therefore, these people 
We're told, he says, consider your ways. Or, set your heart upon your ways. You see, man's way always seems right unto him. That is what the writer of the Proverbs says, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. And you remember God said, speaking of mankind, they're all gone out of the way. Each one is turned to his own way. And you remember that it's put in Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. That is the problem with mankind today. And Proverbs again says, The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And Proverbs 2.12 says, The way of the evil man. And God says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. My, how the Word of God enlarges upon all of these things that reveal man's ways, not God's way. And he speaks in Proverbs 6.23 of the way of life. And Proverbs again says in chapter 13, verse 15, the way of the transgressor is hard. I'll say it's hard. God says that it's going to be hard. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, in verse 7, he said, "...let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord. He will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly part. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." Now, that's just what God says. And in Jeremiah 10, 23, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man that walketh to direct his steps. And it was Jeremiah in the sixth chapter, verse 16, he says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way? And walk therein. Ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We'll not walk therein. Because man is in rebellion against God. In Jeremiah 10, 2, he says, Learn not the way of the heathen. And God says, This is the way, walk ye in it. Isaiah 30, 21. And the Lord Jesus put it like this in John 10, verse 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And then he goes on to say, speaking of the door, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and he shall go in and out and find pasture. How tremendous this is, and this is what God is saying to these people. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Set your heart upon your ways. Don't you see what's happening to you? How many that are listening to me right now, 
I mean face right up to it. What way are you on today? Where is this way you are following now? Where is it leading you? Have you ever stopped to think where drugs are going to lead you? There's not but one out. It's a broad way when you start out. You do as you please. But you see, that broad way is actually a funnel. And it keeps getting narrower and narrower. And there's only one little narrow spot where it comes out. And that is destruction. Broad way to begin with. But God says that he's the way and no other way. And you enter that in the other end of the funnel, the narrow part of the funnel. But as you go along, he says, you'll go in and out and find pasture. My, broad after you get in, and they'll have life and have it more abundantly. Consider your ways. Set your heart upon your ways. Where are you going? Where are you headed? How are you getting on in your job? How's your marriage working out? Young person in college, how are you coming on with your studies? Do you have a goal in life? How about a young lady, the young man you're going with? Where will he take you to? Where is he going to lead you to? What's going to happen to you? Why don't you consider your ways? Why don't you set your heart upon your ways and give attention to this? I read letters of folk in all walks of life, or in several walks of life, but I read letters from people in every walk of life, and many are headed on the right path, and others very frankly say they're not. They got on the wrong path. They got on the wrong way, and it brought them to a broken heart and a wrecked life. Consider your ways, God says. This is so practical that you couldn't run a symposium on this. You certainly couldn't have a series of messages on a thing that's that simple. You just couldn't make a program out of it or a method out of it. It's just set your heart upon your ways. Give a little thought to this, friends. Where are you headed today? Now, God's going to tell them what to do. And I'll be honest with you. This is so simple that I almost hesitate to read this to you. It's so simple. It's so clear what they were to do. God told them that there were three things they were to do. You see, this is a good, conservative, fundamental sermon. All good sermons have three points. God gives them a good one here. And the solution was so simple. And so here, verses 8 through 11, you have a command to construct the temple. You see, their problem before was there was a conflict of interest. They put their homes above God's house. And they were putting their selfish ends ahead of God's program. And the Lord Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, says, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, that righteousness that's in Christ. And when you have him, then he says all these things, those things that you're after, there's nothing wrong with them. I think money can be spiritual. I think your home can be spiritual. You have a Bible class in it or a place there where friends can come and a testimony for the Lord is given. Why, that's all, may I say, holy. <laughs> that is sacred. Just not your church, but your home can be. 
And my feeling is that a home can be spiritual. The things that people are after, and I don't think it's so wrong that they're after them, they put them first in their lives, and they want to use them for their selfish end. Now, God says to you, I want to tell you what you're to do. And it's so simple. The solution here is very simple. Three things there to do. Verse 8, chapter 1 of Haggai. Listen to this. Go up to the mountain. That's number one. Go up to the mountain. That's the instruction. And two, bring wood. And three, build a house. Say, I'll be honest with you. I wonder why some of them hadn't seen that. We let that big eye get in front of our eyes. And when a big eye shuts out everything else in our eyes, and we don't see the things that we should see, that which would be very simple becomes a very complex problem. And people say life today is so complex, and we need the psychiatrist. We must go and get things straightened out. My friend, if you just put God in his place, it is straighten out a great many things and get big eye out of the way. Remove that. This is very simple. I'm almost embarrassed to dwell on this. Somebody says, you mean you could make a sermon out of this? I have. I've preached on these three points. Go up to the mountain. Cut down the trees. Go up to the mountains. Cut down the trees. By the way, that's interesting. You see, that land is denuded today. Israel has had a project from the very beginning to plant trees, and they planted millions of trees. And still, those hills all look bare to me. Very few of them have any green on them. A lot of bare hills. You can be sure of one thing. God did judge that land. But how were the trees removed? For all that land was covered with trees. This verse reveals it here. God wouldn't tell them to go up to the mountains and get wood if there wasn't any wood up there. They'd have another good excuse if they could say, well, there's no wood up there. But there was. That whole land was covered with trees. You remember the night the Lord Jesus was arrested. Peter came in with John, and they had a fire built there. What kind of fire do you think it was? Do you think they had heating oil in that day? Do you think that they were using electrical heat? They weren't. They were burning wood. Well, where could you get wood in that land? There were trees, and that's what happened. When the enemy came into that land, he cut down a great many of the trees. In fact, he cut down all the trees practically. Now, God says, go up to the mountain. It's just that simple. They were saying, well, you know it's not time to build God's house. After all, that's going to require a little effort to go up to the mountain. And the second thing, you're to bring the wood. That is, make lumber out of it. Hew the logs out. And then the third thing, build the house. Build the temple. Get busy. Go to work. That was the answer. You know, that is the solution to a great many of the problems that the Christians have in today. And it's so simple that many of us have missed it. I know people that have been going for years to Sunday school conventions, Bible conferences, and these symposiums, 
and they have been taking course after course after course. And I know them. I know many people like that. And they tell me, oh, I just hope someday I'm going to be used of God. I hope someday I'll be able to do something. Do you know what the problem is? They're lazy. They don't go to work. The Holy Spirit is not going to bless laziness. I think I've used this before, but it certainly illustrates the thing that we want to say today. I used to have students the day of exam come up to me and say, well, I wasn't able to study last night. We felt we should have a prayer meeting for China or Africa. And I said, look, the night before exam, I can tell you it's never God's will for you to pray for Africa. You better pray that you pass the exam, and I won't excuse you for that. That's just a pious reason. You go back and sit down and take the exam. Boy, they didn't like that. Of course they didn't. They're very pious, but very lazy, I'll tell you that. And then they say that we just felt like the Lord would give us the answer. And I used to tell them, you can't put a Schofield Bible under your pillow at night before exam and expect the knowledge to come up through the duck feathers. God just doesn't give it that way, friends. There is no substitute for work in God's program today. No substitute for work. We'll have to leave off there, but I told you that you wouldn't like Haggai. Now, friends, as we come back to the little book of Haggai, it's not a profound book. It's a very simple book, but it's a book of action. Things take place in this little book for the very simple reason that Life has become complicated and complex to us and because, very frankly, we don't really face up to the issues. We don't really face the facts. And we're trying to live, many of us, in a hothouse of affluence and indulgence. And we have come through that period. And it might be good for us to be tested in these days to get us down out of the ivory tower in which many of us have been living. And this little book brings us right down to the ground. This prophet Haggai carried around with him a measuring stick, a ruler, a yardstick. He measured off everything because they're going to rebuild a temple and you need to measure things off. And you need to get right down to the earth, right where the rubber meets the road, friends. And so this man has a hammer in one hand and a saw in the other. He's ready to go to work. And my friend, if you're not ready to go to work, Bible study really is not going to help you very much. And if you're not willing to do what God wants you to do, whatever that might be, and God believes in work, this is the gospel of work. Now, we saw in this marvelous little book here, first of all, God's challenge to his people in the first 11 verses. They were kidding themselves that they were doing God's will, that the reason they hadn't built the temple, it wasn't because it had cost them something. The reason was that they were just plain lazy. And they covered all of that over, though, with the very pious platitude of saying, well, the time that the Lord's house should be built has not come. 
It's just not the Lord's will. And God told them to get up off of their haunches and go to work. And he said, haven't you stopped to think of the fact that I'm judging you, the fact that you've had bad crops and that things are difficult for you and you can't save anything? You've been blaming all your circumstances. God says, why don't you blame me? I'm the one that sent this to you. I'm trying to wake you up, as we said before that this man Haggai was an alarm clock. And alarm clock is not popular. It's not a loving cup by any means. He's waking the people up. And he's asked them, consider your ways. Set your heart on this. And now he tells them that they are actually to get busy. And we have them responding to the challenge It's very wonderful to see their response here. They do get busy. We are going to see that. There was a charge of conflict of interest, and that was a call to consider their ways, and now there's a command to construct the temple. And it is very simple. Nothing complicated about it. He said, go on up to the mountain and bring wood. You don't expect it to come down to you. The logs won't roll down the mountain to you. You're going to have to go up and go to work. There are so many people today, they're being encouraged by certain ones to look for a miracle in your life. Oh, God's going to deal with you by miracle. No, he's not. I'm here to tell you, he's not. It'd be very easy for someone to have come along at this time and said to them, expect a miracle. God says, go up there and bring down the wood. That's the thing that you're to do. Go to work. There's no easy shortcut to any of this business today. Very frankly, laziness is the reason Sunday school teachers don't succeed. Laziness is the reason preachers don't succeed. Laziness is the reason that people fail in the Christian life. You've got to work at it. And I do not think that the Holy Spirit will ever bless laziness. I just don't believe he'll do it. I remember that... A fellow in seminary said to the professor one day, he says, Doctor, that book you gave us to read, it is dry. <laughs> and the professor looked up at him and smiled. And he says, well, the thing you're to do is to dampen it with a little perspiration from your brow. That's the way. You don't expect the Christian life to be handed to you on a silver platter. The miracle comes, my friend, in the work that you do. Go up. Bring wood and build the house. How important that was. And so there was first a charge of conflict of interest, putting God's house second, and theirs was first. Someone has asked me, said, you'd say that the house of God or God's work should come first and not a man's own home. Isn't that home important? Yes, it is. And how would you measure it? Well, If you're living in a finer house than your church is, you ought to be embarrassed by that. My feeling is that we need to have a place that the unsaved can come to and a place you not be ashamed of. And therefore, it ought to be on the same plane and par with the own home that you live in. And so God called them to consider. Then he gave them a command. He said to them, I want you to go to work. And you have here what Dr. Frank Morgan has called, first, there was the appeal to the mind. 
He told them there at the very beginning. He says, you say it's not time to build God's house? Well, I want you to think about this. How is it you're living in fine houses? And that was the appeal to the mind. The second was a call to consider. And that was an appeal to the heart. He says, set your heart or lay your heart to this. This was the challenge that God was giving to these people. Set your heart to this. And they were actually not doing that. Now he gives them a command. And that command is an appeal to the will. Go up, bring wood, and build. So simple, so important. Roll up your sleeve. Let's go to work for God today. So many people sitting on the sideline. This is a day of spectator sports. But frankly, it's a day of spectator Christian. They like to sit on the sidelines and see somebody else do it. Many of preachers being worked to death today. He's called upon to visit all the sick. He does all administration. He's to see about everything. What about you deacons? Why don't you go to work? What about you members of the church? Are you visiting the sick? He's not the one to be. He's to train you to do the work of the ministry. That is the way that it should be done today. And instead of all the burden falling on just a few folk, may I say to you, if you're going to do God's work in the local church, you need to go to work there. It's something that's desperately needed today. May I give this little illustration? In the first pastorate I had after I was ordained, before that I was just a student pastor, and you never feel like you're really a preacher then. But after I was ordained and put hands on my head, I felt like I really, you know, it arrived. And in this first pastorate, I had a deacon in that church. He came to me, made a special trip out to the study one morning. He said, now, Vernon, I was pastor of the church. I was raised in. They all knew me. That was a good thing and a bad thing, too, by the way. Some of them knew me when. And others knew me and loved me. And some of the best friends I have today are those that were just young people in the church when I was a young person in the church in our teens. And so this deacon came out, and he said, Vernon, he said, now, I can't pray in public. I don't know why, but I can't. In fact, the matter is, he says, I can't speak in public. And he says, don't call on me ever to speak or pray in public. He said, I'll embarrass you, and I'll embarrass myself. I just can't do it. I can't overcome it. And actually, tears were in his eyes. But he said, look, any time anything about this church needs to be done, whether it's to put in a light bulb that is burnt out, or to put a new roof on the church, or to do anything around this place, you call me. And so, you know all I'd have to do after that? I'd call him about something needed repairing or remodeling around the church. And friends, sometimes in less than an hour, a whole crew of men would be out there to do it. And he'd be right there with them. You know, I learned very early that he was one of the most, I should say, valuable members I ever had in a church. He was Haggai. He believed in getting down and doing the work 
And do you know that speakers I'd have in and different visitors would say, my, this church is sure kept up. What a lovely place to come and worship. My friend, you know why? I had a man who couldn't pray in public, and thank God he couldn't, because most churches have too many that do. We need somebody to work, friends. We need somebody to roll up their sleeves and go to work. Actually, this book is too simple to be in God's Word. It ought to be a little bit more complicated. He gave me a sermon here. Go up to the mountain. That's point number one. Bring wood. That's point number two, and build a house. And friends, what can I say about that other than do it? That's all. Now, will you notice as we move on down in verse 9, he says, Ye look for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. You've been so busy building your own, taking care of the things of yourself, and you've neglected God's. Now you've wondered why these things have happened to you. Now again, they've been too pious to blame God. That was the circumstances. It was a bad year. We had a drought, you know, and that sort of thing. God says, I'd like for you to know that I'm the one that did it. I saw to it that everything you did came to little and that you were not successful. Why? Well, God says, I'll tell you why. Because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. I'll tell you why. The Lord Jesus stated this great principle, and it's a principle for people anytime any place in any age. And that is simply this, that when God is put first, then these other things will take care of themselves. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, righteousness that's in Christ, and all these things shall be added unto you. What a message there is here. And yet it's so simple, I'm afraid we'll miss it. Now, verse 10, Therefore, he says, the heavens over you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds her fruit. Actually, when there wasn't any rain, there was not any crops. The wheat and the barley would not grow, and the vines would not produce. God says, I turned off the spigot. I didn't give you any water. You see, today, we don't interpret life like that because we live in a mechanical society. We live in an electronic age. And the problem today is that a machine didn't work somewhere. Or it was because somebody didn't push a button. Or maybe somebody did push a button. They pushed the wrong one. And we say these are the things, and we put up so many things between where we are in God that we're blaming things today and conditions and systems. These are the things that don't work. I think God would like to get through to America today and said, Look, had it ever occurred to you that I may be back of all of this problem that you're having today? 
Don't you know that I'm the one that is trying to get your attention off of things and get them on me today, that that's all important? Now, will you notice what he says? The Lord takes the blame for all of this. And since he takes the blame, I'm not going to blame anybody else. Verse 11, And I call for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the grain and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which the ground bringeth forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of the hands. Now, God says, All of these things that have come to you, material blessings, have been withheld because I withheld them. I'm responsible. I did this. I'm the one. And frankly, today, our tendency is we blame first the mayor. First, I guess we blame the police, don't we? They should have been on the job. We blame the mayor. We blame the governor and the legislature. And I sometimes think they're to blame, too. And we blame Washington. And may I say to you that I think all of them are guilty, every one of them. But my friend, had ever occurred to you that maybe we are to blame? We're blaming men and machines for the conditions that are in the world. Do you know why the conditions that are in the world right now are such as they are? It is simply because God brought it to pass. Now, let's blame him. All right? You want to blame him? Go ahead. He says he's responsible. He says it here, but he's going to tell you why. He says, you have neglected me. You see, the solution to our problem is so simple, and yet it's so complicated. We think that if we put in a new method or a new machine or a new man, things are going to work out, that we can solve our problems. Friends, why don't we recognize what our problem is, who caused it, and how it can be solved? It's very simple, but it's very complex, by the way. In fact, it's so simple here, I'm just almost embarrassed to pass all this on to you. Now, let's read verse 12. Now, when we come to verse 12, we come to the response to the challenge that God has given to them. And you have here in verse 12 the construction of the temple, the people obeyed, and the confirmation from God in verses 13 and 14. Again, very simple, but very important here. Now, will you notice? Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Lord. Now, what is needed, of course, actually today, are Christians in places of leadership. We've had men that have been like Gladstone said when he was asked, what's the mark of a great statesman? said, a man who knows the direction God is going for the next 50 years. Now, we don't seem to have men that know the direction God is going for the next 50 minutes. And we haven't had, in my day, any man that I felt 
in either the Congress or the presidency or governor that I felt was a man who really knew God and was being led of God. We need that in this country. That's very important. Did you notice here that Zerubbabel, he's the governor, and Joshua's the high priest, and then the people, the remnant of the people that returned, they all obeyed God. And when they obeyed God, why, a blessing came. And I mean blessing came in great abundance. Now, will you notice here, he says, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Lord. Now, this is a message that was given after the first message. In fact, now we've come to the second message, as we said that there are five dated messages in this book. Now, if you look at verse 15, the last verse of this chapter, you'll see the date here. In the fourth and twentieth day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. So what we have here is a message given on September the 24th, 520 B.C. The first one was given September the 1st. So 24 days later, this second message was given. You see, during that time, the people responded. They have now a will to obey God. The plans are drawn up. They have the program outlined to bring wood down from the mountains, and they're getting ready to build the temple. That is the thing that has taken place in 24 days. Haggai is a man of action, and he's a man that could inspire the people to action also. That's very important. Now, will you notice, and they have now a confirmation from God. Notice now verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, Then spoke Haggai the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. Now, could you ask for anything more than that, friends? He says, I am with you. I'm with you. The Lord Jesus said, Lo, I'm with you until the end of the age. And that rested upon obedience, you see. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And he didn't say, I will be with you if you sit upon your haunches and you don't do anything for God. He never said he'd be with you there. He said, I'm with you when you obey me. And that is the place of blessing. And we can have fellowship with him. I am with you, saith the Lord. You can't improve on that. You can't have anything better than that. And so what happens here now? The leaders, they enter enthusiastically into the work. Notice verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Now, this is pretty important to see. The leadership of the nation, the civil leader, Zerubbabel, the governor. And he was in the 
King Lelan. He was actually the son of Shealtiel. That word, Shealtiel, is an interesting word. It means asking of God in prayer. So there was a lot of prayer back of this also. Now, will you notice they came and did work in the house of the Lord. And Joshua here is the high priest. And then we're told the remnant of the people that had come back. So that here's a joining together of government and citizens and religion, the God-given religion in that day. Now, this took place in verse 15, in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Now, this was September the 24th, 520. Now, the first message was given on September the 1st, 520. That's when God challenged them. Now, they responded to the challenge here, and on September the 24th, why, Haggai gave them the second message. Because what had happened? The people have now come together. They're organized. They're going to start work. And they're beginning now to cut down the trees, bring the logs down, make it into lumber, and they're beginning to build. I suppose at this time the foundation was laid and probably a few of the uprights around the temple, they were in place.